Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Eugene Meehan about appellate advocacy. Eugene's a specialist in Supreme Court of Canada advocacy and agency work. He's the founding partner of the boutique law firm Supreme Advocacy LLP, was a former law professor and the first executive legal officer to Chief Justice Lemaire at the Supreme Court of Canada. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Eugene. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for being here. Eugene, I'd love to start off by talking about your practice in a little bit more detail. It intrigues me, the specialization in appellate work. So I wonder if you can just expand a little bit on sort of the differences between an appellate practice and a trial practice. Sure. Let me uh, say three things. Number one, our firm specializes in appellate work, which is Court of Appeal and Supreme Court of Canada across the country. Uh, The lawyers here are members of many different uh, bars, uh, myself, including the US. Um, number two, uh, I'm also a member of the US Supreme Court Bar and about to be a member of the Washington DC Bar for a crazy, dream, dreamy reason. Uh, <laughs> I think it would be super cool to be able to argue a case in the US Supreme Court and all having also argued cases here. Uh, Is it a long shot? Is it impossible? It's within the realm of possibility. There are some clients, some institutional clients that I do work for here in Canada that have ongoing litigation in the US. Um, So one never knows, but that's a crazy reason to do that. Uh, The third thing I would mention in terms of how trial work is different from uh, appellate litigation, um, it's kind of like... um, the difference between plumbers and carpenters and electricians, they all work on construction, but their job is completely different. Uh, Mm. From a trial perspective, um, there's trial judge, there's sometimes a jury, both criminal and civil, depending on the jurisdiction one is in. Uh, There are witnesses, there are will say statements, there are motions before you get to trial, there's motions in trial, there's examinations and discovery, there's cross-examinations and affidavits, the settlement conferences, there's a lot of things that happen before you get to trial. And um, appellate litigation is, is um, I don't want to say cleaner uh, because it can get very messy as well, uh, but it's uh, often more focused. There are certain things that one is stuck with, to speak plainly from what happened below, findings of fact, uh, sometimes mixed facts in law, although that depends. Uh, there is a standard of review, so depending on what that is, you're stuck with that as well. But there's also a lot of creativity at the appellate uh, at the appellate stage. Uh, I am on, and our firm is on, sometimes for the appellant, sometimes for the respondent, and the strategy is different from both. Um, so um, it's, it's there's an, an awful lot of differences. I could speak for the next hour about the differences. <laughs> Uh, my my wife was a trial judge for about 15, 16 years, so I know by, by osmosis what it's like from the trial judge sort of aspect from it. And because that's one of the reasons why I, our firm primarily does appellate litigation rather than, rather than trial work. Um, the appellate litigation can sometimes have a, 
an academic aspect to it. As you mentioned earlier, I've been a prof before. Uh, my colleague, Marie France, has been a prof before at two different universities. Both of us have uh, PhDs in law. Hers is from Berkeley, mine's is from McGill. And that, that academic uh, background can be helpful at the appellate stage. But sometimes, to speak plainly, it can be un unhelpful in the sense that it's that there's much, it can be a brutal uh, cut and thrust at the appellate stage as well, and you have to leave the academic stuff out of it. So you have to evaluate each case uh, from a strategic perspective. So when, when one is getting into an appeal, one has to put one's thinking cap on and figure out what are the strengths and weaknesses we have on our side and what are the strengths and weaknesses that the other side have, because they always have strengths. And they always have weaknesses, just like we do. And a try in a trial, it's much more, it's much more a sort of almost an all-out battle. Uh, whereas at the appellate stage, um, uh, it can not always, always, but it can be sometimes and oftentimes much more strategic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's interesting you say that because I, I think, in my sense, I would expect that you have sort of. Um, a very limited opportunity to convince an appellate judge of your theory of the case. Like, it seems like things are a little bit more narrow as opposed to at the trial level, but maybe I'm mistaken. No, that's, no, that's right. Uh, and I mean, uh, as the appellant, you're often looking for, um, I don't want to say the magic bullet, but you're looking because if you, it's always best if you flip it over to the other side. So if you're looking at it, if you and I were, uh, now on the Court of Appeal, we'd be looking at a factum, we'd be knowing the argument's going to come. If we were the on, we, we as the appellate judges would be looking at the case to see, did the trial judge go wrong here significantly? I mean, I don't want to get into the palpable and overriding error yeah. situation, but from, a, so from the Court of Appeal's perspective, and also Swing kind of Canada, there are similarities and dissimilarities at that level, uh, but at the at the appellate level, for certain, the Court of Appeal is thinking, well, what did the trial judge here do anything wrong? Was it something that is uh, demonstrably wrong? Is it something that is clean that can be pointed out? Like, did he or she use the wrong test? Uh, mm -hmm. Was there misinstructions to the jury? Was there instructions... Uh, you know, a lack of instructions when there should have been instructions. Uh, was there the proper test used? Was the proper test uh, applied to the facts? So you're so therefore, when you flip it back to the appellant, you're looking for something that is clean, that is distinct, that is relatively unarguable. Which is why, if you're going into the court of appeal with you say 15, 15 issues, uh, that's um, that's not going to work. Uh, mm -hmm. That's as my kids used to say, that's wrongo bongo uh, to go there. Um, uh, like there are a few judges, I'm not saying there aren't, but there are very few judges that will make 15 mistakes in one judgment that right. it's worthy of appellate review. Right, right. Yeah, and it gets me thinking too about the role of the factum. Does it play a different role at the different levels of court? Oh, absolutely. Um, Justice Sapinka used to say that at the trial level, written argument is worth um, about 5%, and that what happens in the actual trial is 95%. At the Court of Appeal, he, he would say that the, the factum is 75% important, oral argument 25%. Um, and in the Swinger of Canada, he said it went up to about 95%. The factum was 95% important, and oral argument 5% important. The factum is 
absolutely key. It's what the judges read first. Um, uh, well, they may read the, the judgment below first and then go to the factum. But the factum is with the judges before the appeal, during the appeal, after the appeal, when they've written, when they are writing the judgment. And sometimes the the judgment is not written for several months because there are other appeals and other things that happen. So what one puts in the factum is absolutely key. It's the, it's the difference between winning and losing. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. So I'm wondering when it comes to writing the factum then, are there things that one should keep in mind when they're writing for a particular court, um, sort of knowing the percentages that you've just quoted? Uh, well, there's tons of things. There's uh, there's tons of mistakes. Um, uh, a couple, for example, that are uh, someone. It's very common still that the person writing the factum, including an oral argument, will give what I would call a procedural history opening, and simply say, "Well, this happened. You know, what happened at trial? When the trial was? Who the judge was? Um, and, and if you're at Spring Canada." that there was a trial and then there was a court of appeal. And it's, it's as if the Supreme Court of Canada are surprised. It, really? There was a trial? And then it went <laughs> to the court of appeal? Like, that's what we do here. So, so it's important to have an appropriate opening. And last one thing that I'm simply talking about, the opening paragraph, the opening can mean different things. The opening is whatever the judge looks to first. So if the judge might read the opening paragraph first, that's the opening. There's many different types of openings you can have. Uh, leading with strength, for example, leading with a key fact as found, uh, indicating this is a complex appeal, but there are three key issues here. There's other options. Um, but if the judge might read the issues section first, then the issue section is absolutely key. It's like that's really your opening. So the way you write the opening is, is super important. And uh, too many lawyers write the opening, uh, you know, without without a lot of thought, like saying issue number one is, is the defendant liable in negligence to the plaintiff? Well, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of obvious. Like that's not, yes, that's a legal issue, but it's, kind of boring and it doesn't grab you and there's a lot more that you could put in there. So when we draft issues um, uh, in our the factums at, at this firm uh, at Supreme Advocacy, we draft them in a particular way. There's a heading in bold uh, and then we say what the, what, the, what the issue is and then we have a short explanatory, very short paragraph, sometimes a sentence or two that supports what that issue is and why that's important. So the opening is important. I, I can also go to what I would call the top three judicial piss-off factors, whether it's a trial <laughs> judge, court of appeal, or the Swinger Canada. And piss-off factor number one is to cite tons of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of lawyers do that. And they do that because it makes them feel smart to speak plainly. And you don't need that. Like you really only need two cases or three. Uh, now it's what I would call the double L rule or the, the triple L rule. The double L rule is the leading case and the latest case. And if you're at the trial court, um, I would make that into the triple L rule, which is the leading case, the latest case and the, and the a local case. Mm-hmm. Uh, another piss-off factor, the second one, is to put in long quotes, um, like long blog quotations. I, I suspect that those just don't get read or get read very quickly. And uh, the way to, to deal with that is to keep the quotes really short, use ellipsis, you know, three dots, add emphasis, break it up. And the third piss-off factor is citations. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, lawyers at all levels 
who will put a citation in uh, but will not put the actual paragraph or the page in. And the signal to the judges is, well, I've read the whole case, you read the whole case, and you figure out what it, what it says. And that's that just pisses them off. There's no point. Like if you're in for... Um, for a vasectomy, there's no point in insult, insulting uh, the the doctor, male or female, holding the scalpel. That's not <laughs> going to work. So citations, uh, I mean, I'm, there's two parts to that is every time you cite a case, the actual case, the actual page of the paragraph you're citing from, quoting from should be in there. You should never cite a case, put a citation in without a paragraph, a reference, a paragraph or page number. And then the other thing is to put, put in a book of authorities, a brief, a select, I call it a selected book of authorities, whereby the, the authorities are selected and the extracts from the authorities are selected. And you put, you highlight the key extract and or you sideline or underline so that it goes through all the way through photocopy. Mm-hmm. And how does that work with virtual proceedings? Oh, it works even better with virtual proceedings because you can put that up. Uh, you can ask uh, the host uh, for permission to share, and uh, you or another or, or another uh, counsel uh, on your side or a paralegal or legal secretary can put the uh, the book of extracts up, like on the screen, uh, side by with side. the highlighting, with, with the highlighting, and yeah already highlighted and uh, that's very effective. Uh, myself and my colleague Thomas Slade argued a, a two-day appeal in the Federal Court of Appeal in Calgary a few months ago and uh, we did that. We had a book of extracts and we asked for permission to share on, it was on Zoom and so we put all of our extracts up um, uh, on uh, right on the screen so the judges on the other side could read them. And the the other side, the federal government in this case, objected to it. Objections were ruled, overruled by the Court of Appeal because they found them helpful. And indeed, in several cases, the federal government lawyers referred to our materials during the appeal. So mm-hmm. it works even better in Zoom or Teams. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. And you were mentioning about um, the issues and how you structure them and highlight them and have a little sort of explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that how you start to write the factum? Like, I know the factum doesn't start, like the form of the factum doesn't start with the issues, but is that how you start to write? Uh, that's a really good question, actually. Yeah, that's the, 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 you would think the normal way to write a factum would be start at the beginning and end at the end. Uh, that's not the most effective way. Uh, the most efficient way to write a factum is, is to start with the issues, write the issues section first. Uh, and number the, you, there should not be more than it is rare that there should be any times more than three issues. Um, usually not more than three. If there's a fourth issue, maybe. Uh, if there's more than that, there's you've got too many issues, or you're not thinking as to how they should be blended into other issues. So that you're because people remember things. People can remember two, three, and once you get out of three, you have trouble. People have trouble tracking it. So the the best, most efficient way to write the factum is part two, the issue section, um, and number them one, two, three, and then and then write the facts section with an overview, even if it's. Even if it's obliged, some jurisdictions oblige you to put a short overview in, some don't. I always put one in. It's helpful to the judges if they read that first. It's kind of what I call the first page rule. Everything that is key and important should be on the first page. Um, And then you write the facts in such a way that it supports the issues. You don't have to put all of the facts in. You only have to put the facts in that support those issues. 
And it's kind of my analogy is kind of like being in high school and you're having a you're in the chemistry lab and you have an aquarium with a copper sulfate solution and you put two electrodes in and then you turn on the current and the copper uh, accresces if that's the right word uh, to one of the electrodes. Uh, so you think of that electrode as uh, an issue. So you write the facts in such a way that it appropriately and accurately accresses to that issue so is it when the judges are reading the they read the issues first usually uh and there's a practical reason for that and i'll come to that in a moment but they read the fact section next and then they see that that fits with what the issues are the issues are important and why the judges often read them first is because they want to know what their job job is in that case like what do i have to decide what do i not have to decide uh what are the issues what's my job here Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like I mean they provide context for the entire uh, for an entire appeal or whatever it is that you're writing the the factum for. That's right, um, and then of course you put right part three, the analysis section after that, and part three tracks the same issues. So you've got part one, two, three that shows up in the issue section, and part one, two, three. I'm sorry, issue one, two, three shows up in the analysis section, uh, and it it just comes across as cleaner, professional, convincing. Mm-hmm. And it's much, much easier to sort of uh, read issue one and then knowing that you can read the analysis of issue one. Uh, yeah, it just, like you say, it's cleaner and it just makes logical sense. Well, uh, increased, increased accessibility gives increased understandability. Increased understandability bleeds into increased acceptability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how about when it comes to oral argument? How does the factum play into the way one would present uh, their argument before the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court of Canada, for example? Well, uh, let me go sort of think it, tell, think it out the box and say it doesn't really uh, from oral argument, except, except it, it doesn't, it doesn't. Because I feel a common mistake is to rely on your factum too much they do, because a lot of lawyers think that they, the factum is your safe harbour, and it is. Uh, but uh, ships are safest in the harbour, but that's not what ships are for. Ships are not to be just sitting in the harbour. So the phantom uh, can be the safe harbour, but you have to step outside that and be able to move away from it. So you have to know the phantom well, but you also have to know the other side's phantom uh, well. So what I do uh, uniformly, no matter the appeal, no matter what I'm doing, is I write the whole argument out on one page in my own handwriting because I... Uh, I can write very small and I, I write everything out on the arguments. I put the headings in red. I write everything out, all my arguments in a single page. On the right hand side, I have a column and I have an ab- abbreviation that I like, uh, like F and in a small nine would mean my fact on paragraph nine. Mm-hmm. Um, BA, uh, BA6 would be Book of Authorities uh, tab six. Uh, RF would be respondents factum, um, um, et cetera, and other, other abbreviations. So is that when I, I, I see the whole case on a single page and I'm able to, if I refer to uh, anything from that single page by cross-referencing over to any materials that is filed below. So I figure out a way to get the whole appeal onto a single page. And in the Federal Court of Appeal case, that uh, my colleague uh, Tom and I argued it was a two-day appeal, but I still had the whole the whole appeal was on one page. 
Well, and that, I mean, that requires so much preparation, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, but it, but yeah. it pays off in spades because when you get to the appeal, uh, the judges don't have to, the judges, many judges, like if you start to read your phantom back to the judges, they just, it ticks them off and they'll just take you off your game. Like if they think that you've been up uh, late last night practicing your speech in the, in the uh, in the hotel bathroom the night before, they'll knock you off your parents. They that's not of interest to them. They have issues, uh, they have questions, and they want to go there. The other thing that I also do is I write all the questions out that I anticipate. Uh, I write them out with the, in red the, the the headings. Sometimes that may be more than a page, a couple of pages. And again, I have my anticipated answer written in some very, very small writing under each. And again, the same column on the right hand side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Such a great idea. And in, in terms of your own preparation, how much time would you say you devote to preparing the factum um, versus preparing this one page summary of, uh, of your argument? Um, well, the, the shortest time I've ever given it uh, would be um, there's a, an appeal that um, I don't want to say too much about this. Because uh, I don't want to say what the case is, or or but there's a, uh, a Supreme Court of Canada appeal I argued with two weeks' notice, um, where the council, uh, the council at the Court of Appeal were going to argue it in the Supreme Court of Canada, and uh, they decided not to argue it themselves in the Supreme Court of Canada, and asked me if I would argue it in the Swinger of Canada. And at that point, I was technically only the agent, uh, but uh, my colleague, Marie France, had done most of the agency work on that. So I picked the file up from practically zero knowledge to arguing it two weeks later. So that's the that's the absolute minimum time that I've put into it, but I had no choice. But in those two weeks, I had to go from zero to knowing that I was on. So uh, I did nothing but um, work and... Uh, eat and sleep for those two weeks. Like I didn't even work at the office. There were too many. Uh, there were too many um, uh, other things going on at the office. So I took everything home and worked at home for two weeks straight without hardly a break, and and it went fine. But usually, uh, in terms of preparation to arguing an appeal, um, court of appeal or something in Canada, including uh, doing the one page and including doing the book of extracts, uh, if you want to win. Uh, you should be looking at two to four weeks in that in that approximate range, you know, of right. practically full-time work. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, it's, it just seems like such a, an intense type of practice. Um, yeah, and sort of in some of the um, more trial-level litigation practices that I'm familiar with, things go at such a different pace depending on the type of file that you're working on, but it seems like everything that you are working on is so intense and requires 110% of your attention. Yeah, because I mean, part of it to speak plainly is, is if I can speak really plainly, is ego uh, in the sense that if you're up in public in front of a few judges who are smart, knowledgeable, have read the file, know the file, they get to ask you anything you want, anything that they want, rather. And um, you don't want to be asked a question you don't know the answer to. Uh, like that's not helpful. It's partly ego, um, and it's partly wanting to win the case. But I never want to go into an appeal and be asked a question that I don't know the answer to. Like it's it's dumb. I don't like to look dumb. 
Um, <laughs> I, and I want to win the case. So mm-hmm. uh, I want to know, the, be able to answer any question um, that the judges can ask me. I mean, now and then uh, you do get a question and the appropriate answer is, I don't know, but you have to follow up and say why. From a strategic perspective, why you don't know why the answer isn't clear. Right. And, right. and that happens every now and then. And that's part of the job of the Court of Appeal, like to turn it around and say, we don't know the answer to this. Here's why we don't know. And here's why we suggest an appropriate answer that you can give us is this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just going back to uh, the factum for a second, you had mentioned about sort of um, you know, the things that the judicial piss off. I have that in quotation marks. <laughs> Those are your yeah. words. Um, yeah. And one of the things sort of underlying that it was, I thought, was sort of this uh, sense of trying to look really smart, making your your case look really complicated. And that, um, you know, you've put forward this potential solution to this really complicated case. And therefore, you are uh, very intelligent. What would you say to that? Is that something that you know you've seen in in factums that um, sure, read so much uh, sure, about? that happens. It, hap- it has happened. Is happening and will happen. And it's not an easy thing to, to to make something simple, because the temptation is we think if we make it simple, we ourselves are being simplistic, and it's trying to find a balance. It's trying to find the balance. We, I mean. Because it's not about you, it's about the judges. So if you think about it from their perspective, they're trying to figure this out. They're trying to understand what is going on. They're trying to understand what the issues are, what the problems are. And they're also trying to figure out what the solution might be. So if anything, they've got a much tougher job than you have because you're only on for one side. Uh, And the other uh, person on the other side, they're on for one side. So you have to make it accessible to them. And... And making something accessible to somebody else, it's it's finding the line between making it simple, but yet not making it simplistic. Right. Uh, and it's finding it's finding that line, and 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 making something complex. Um, that's not helpful. Uh, like, yeah, in an introduction, you can say this is a complex appeal for these reasons, but and then you give what the reasons are, and then you and then you try to figure it out to help somebody understand. Uh, like in a previous life when I taught uh, real property, I taught the rule against perpetuities, which is a highly complex uh, rule. Uh, but what I did to help, and I could have explained the rule in such a way nobody could have understood. The students would have thought I'm a genius, but I'm not a genius. Uh, it's my role for the uh, in first-year property to help them understand. So I figured out like um, nine or ten steps Um uh, as to how to go through the rule against perpetuities. And, and step number one is, why Why is it a rule against perpetuities? Why do we have it? Uh, what's the purpose of it? And you take it from there to nine or ten is all the... Number two was the, the definition of rule against perpetuities, rule in being plus 21 years. You explain that. And then you take it stage by stage. And mm-hmm. you, can, you can take it stage by stage and explain something that is extremely complicated to someone in an understandable way. If lawyers do that in the IP world. There are really smart lawyers that are really good at explaining pharmaceuticals, explaining physics, explaining biology, including molecular biology, electricity. I mean, their job is to 
explain, uh, and many of them have other professions. Some of them are electrical engineers, some of them are geologists, um, biologists, bioscience experts. They have to, they understand it, but they have to figure out a way to explain something that is a bioscience concept to somebody that isn't a bioscientist. Hmm. Yeah, I, it always amazes me. <laughs> yeah. So ways that we can sort of, um, you know, get away from trying to show how complex the case is, I come back to something, I guess, as one of my pet peeves, when I read something where every paragraph starts with on such and such date, and then on or about this date, on or about that date. Um, what's your view on specifying dates or including so many dates? Yeah, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good question too. And you're right, uh, lawyers use an awful lot of dates and they do it to show how smart and exact they are. But, but most of the time, uh, almost all the time, the dates are irrelevant. And what it does is just tick the reader off. Like if the trial judge of the Court of Appeal, if you put in a whole bunch of dates, they assume the dates are there for a reason. So they're paying attention to the dates, they're following the dates, and then sometimes they come to the end of the facts section or the end of a paragraph and they figure out the dates that are irrelevant. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and oftentimes the dates are completely irrelevant. They're, they're, they don't matter at all. And sometimes the dates matter, but it's not really the dates that matter. It's the affliction of time. It's the passage of time that, that matters. So if, if the dates are relevant, then the, the, the simple best way to do what to do is to calculate the relevant time frames for the reader and state them explicitly. So, for example, words like, I call them bridging words or transitional phrases, like it was almost two weeks later that something happened, mm -hmm. and then less than five months later, or six months after the limitation period had expired, um, things like that, because dates otherwise distract. And if you put dates in, there's, you're giving a cue to the reader that there is a time-sensitive issue, and they stay on the lookout for that phantom point, and it is a phantom point. And when they realize that they've been fed a false impression, they either get upset or they just zone out because mm -hmm. you've told them something is important and then you're basically, they figure out it's not important and then they wonder how much of the rest of the phantom is that important? Right. How much are they being played? Right. And I mean, you wouldn't be saying that if you were speaking like if in our argument, you wouldn't be going through like a list of dates like that. Unless well, said, some people do that. They, they yeah. do that. They, they continue the mistake into, into oral argument as well. Hmm. Yeah. Again, to show how knowledgeable they are of the file. Like, what do you do? Like, you should be knowledgeable of the file. You don't have to. You don't have to prove that. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think, you know, the sort of your workaround indicates that you really understand the relationships um, that are important in the file, as opposed to memorizing dates, because that's the impression I get when I hear someone reeling off date after date after date. It just sounds like pure rote memory. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's a good point. The relationship is right, because, because it's important to focus on the temporal relationship between important events rather than the actual dates. Because if you put the dates in, you're forcing the reader to figure out, is the date important? And then what's the difference? And then subtract between this date versus that date. And sometimes it's in different years, so that's tricky. And sometimes it's two or three years later, and that's tricky. You're forcing them to figure it out. And it's not their job to figure anything out. That's your job. Right, right. Yeah, to just, as Justice John Laskin uh, often said, you know, one the key is to try to help the reader, well, make the reader feel smart. 
Um, yeah, that's absolutely together. right. Like if you yeah. write something uh, and it, and you feel smart, uh, that's 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 wrong. You you want the reader to feel smart. You want the reader to feel. I mean, if the reader says at the end of something you write, and they say, "Yeah, I understand. I get where this is going." That's 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 the point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting. Have to be so aware of your audience, and uh, as you say, you know, writing for your reader or your audience, as opposed to writing to show how smart you are uh, as a lawyer. Uh, and I'm just wondering if there's any, if there are any other sort of things that we didn't touch on when it comes to writing factums or even you know presenting uh, oral argument before a court of appeal. Uh, sure. Well, I, I, a couple of things is that the a, a fairly common mistake at the Court of Appeal, but also at the Supreme Court of Canada, is if you're the appellant, that means you've lost below. You've lost at trial, or if you're the appellant in the Supreme Court of Canada, you've lost at the uh, at the Court of Appeal. And a common mistake is to write uh, write the the factum in such a way as to emphasise the facts really strongly. And that's it depends on the case as to whether that's a good idea. And the second thing is, is some lawyers, many lawyers, in fact, write the factum as if you're shouting. I mean, they, they figure the reason that they lost at the Court of Appeal was because the three judges were deaf. So because you're a deaf judges at the Court of Appeal or a deaf trial judge, you want to write it really strongly as if you're shouting. And... Um, uh, that just doesn't work. Uh, it, it it doesn't work. You it's better to to lower it down a bit and uh, and figure out another way. Like it's better to let somebody else take it. Like uh, I argue cases in this in the court of appeal and I I lose. I win. When I lose, I'm pissed off for a long time and I don't think I'm this, the best person to be writing a a leave to appeal on an appeal factor at least for a while. So somebody else here at the firm does that. Uh, for me or in consultation with me, but because you have to sort of put your uh, your ego aside and realize that uh, you didn't lose because the judges are deaf, you lost because they didn't agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another element uh, from a respondent perspective is uh, because you are the respondent, you feel that, well, I'm called the respondent. That's what I have to do. I have, I have to respond. That's my job. Uh, well, no, you, you don't have to respond. You don't have to take the bait. You don't need to take the bait on everything the appellant says. And that's commonly done. Um, and so it's a better to sort of back off, figure out, as I said near the beginning, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And figure out which time you come, you which, how you want to come, come back to that, how you want to approach it. Because as a respondent, you don't need to respond to everything at all. There, you, there are some things you don't need to deal with. There are some things you can deal with very quickly. You can, uh, it's entirely appropriate to say, well, yeah, uh, they have, they have raised issues A, B, C, but we don't think those are the real issues. The real issues are X, Y, Z, and here are the reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, another, uh, maybe last thing is I'll mention is what I would call the, you know, absolutes, because lawyers in oral argument, lawyers watch TV, um, <laughs> go on the internet and, and, and you're tempted, and particularly if the media is involved, you tend to use absolutes more than is necessary for two reasons. It makes you come across as smart and strong, but it can also make the, the case look rather cut and dried and, and not rather nuanced the way most cases are. So absolute expressions like all, always, every, invariably, never, none, totally, undoubtedly, 
really, really accurate. They should be used sparingly, because I I believe that absolutes trigger what I call a, a listeners or a readers perversity. So is that if you tell a trial judge or a court of appeal judge, uh, this campaign was a total failure from beginning to end. That's the sort of the headline you tell them. That's mm-hmm. your theme. The reader or listener thinks, okay, the campaign was it a campaign? A total fail? Was it a total failure? <laughs> was it uh, was it a failure uh, from beginning? When was the beginning? All the way through to the end. When was the end? So you've got five or six questions that are being asked of you. So absolutely, trigger perversity. They trigger questions. And um, you mentioned Justice Laskin a minute ago. Justice Langskin called those false intensifiers that weaken your case rather than rather than strengthen strengthening what you're saying. So generally, understatement or moderation works better than 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 overstatement uh, in all things, and, and particularly appellate advocacy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like there's a lawyer that I know, and I'll I'll leave I'll say his name. There's a lawyer that I've known and worked with in Calgary called uh, uh, Pat Peacock, uh, Queen's Council. And um, I had a case with him some years ago and I was partly on his side and partly not on his side. It was a, um, a multi, multi-party litigation. And I know him from before, uh, from in various respects, but a lawyer that I know there, we hired a, a local agent uh, in Calgary to to. Uh, keep us up to date and what the local scene was and uh, judges and what was happening. And, and this other local lawyer described uh, Pat Peacock uh, in the following way. And I think it's one of the best compliments, and that is he does not overwrite. He does not overstate. Mm. He is moderate. Mm. And um, and in, in terms of trial work and in terms of credibility for the judges, uh, that's that's extremely important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It makes such good sense. Such good sense. Um, yeah. Wow. You've provided so many interesting insights, Eugene, and wonderful uh, just thoughts for young lawyers, seasoned lawyers alike to think about um, as they're preparing for trial or appeals. I think all of what you've said uh, applies across the board. And I know you have been so kind to prepare a paper for the podcast. Um, I just wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about that and where to find it. Well, I've written a, a short paper. It is six and a half pages. And, um, and it's the, what I think are the top 10 uh, mistakes in, uh, in terms of appellate advocacy, whether that be written advocacy or oral advocacy. And what I've called it is, uh, something like how to lose at the Court of Appeal or how to lose at the Supreme Court of Canada. So if you're absolutely insistent on losing at the Court of Appeal, this is the paper for you. Um, and there's 10 things here, but after each each uh, point, there's a short heading that says what's better and then what you should do. So what I've done is list the top 10 mistakes, but right after each one indicate what's the better way to deal with it. How do, How can you do things better and, and improve your speak plainly winnability. And that's accessible from if you, they can, anybody listening to this can send me an email, can send you an email, and I will be happy to send it along as a courtesy and they can use it and give it to uh, lawyers within their firm or whatever. And my email address is emehan at supremeadvocacy.ca. So that's emehan at supremeadvocacy.ca. 
Fantastic. Fantastic. And I have to say in six and a half pages, you cover so much. Uh, super, super useful. I really appreciate uh, you preparing that for listeners. Uh, and also, if we want to learn more about you and the work you do and to sign up for your fantastic newsletter, which I've been a subscriber to for many, many years uh, and enjoy every issue. Uh, how would listeners uh, find that information? Just go to the website. Uh, if okay. you just Google Supreme Advocacy Law Firm, it'll, it'll come up in whether that's um, any of the browsers that, that will come up. Okay, fantastic. I'm the half bald guy uh, in one of the photographs. The others have a lot more hair than me. <laughs> well, Eugene, thank you so much for sharing your expertise about appellate advocacy with us. And of course, in such a humorous way, and it just really helps to bring home, uh, well, helps us to, to remember the important points that you've raised. So really, really appreciate it. Most welcome, always. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.